Since the 1950s, as many as 200,000 South Korean children have been adopted by overseas families. In recent years, many of those adoptees who grew up in the U.S., Europe, and other locations have started to move back to Korea as adults, either temporarily or permanently. What I think is very liberating about this idea of moving back is that it is the adoptee's choice to move back, whereas the choice to leave was not their choice. Kyomi Getz is a Korean-American journalist who's spending the better part of a year in Seoul, Korea, where she's interviewing adoptees who have returned to Korea and sharing their experiences in a podcast called Adapted. The show explores issues of cultural identity, family life, work, play, and it's a fascinating listen, even if you've never spent much time thinking about international adoption. Kyomi is also an adoptee herself, and she and I have been friends for over a decade, so I invited her to share some of her stories on this podcast. Kyomi, thanks for joining us on LPX. Hi. Glad to be here. So so let's start with a little bit of history. When did this phenomena of international adoption really start in Korea? You know, I'm not really the expert in the history of it, but I know like from the Korean War time, um, which is in the 1950s, in the aftermath of that, there was just a lot of chaos, poverty, some devastation from the war. And you've had a lot of families split apart, either a father had deserted or died or um, which left, you know, widowed uh, women who had children that they couldn't take care of. You also had biracial children as a result of uh, American military serving there and, you know, really faced dire prospects at that time in terms of discrimination, opportunities, acceptance into this hugely, fiercely homogenous culture at the time. So there was uh, Harry and Bertha Holt were missionaries that, through their connections, through Congress, were able to open up adoption for these biracial children to the U.S. At the same time, around, I guess, around the 60s, 70s, you've got the legalization of abortion in the U.S. There was just a, a drop in healthy babies available for domestic adoption. So with the start of the biracial children being adopted, then that sort of moved into that children were being um, given up. It was sort of thought to be a win-win for many different interests, but all the interests say it was for the best interest of the child. The interest of the child was, you know, really not known what the child wanted because we were mostly silent and unable to speak for ourselves or advocate for ourselves. And so as adults, it has been quite interesting to actually hear about the different stories of adult adoptees. And for adult adoptees who move back to Korea, there are a huge range of reasons why they do. Some are very um, focused in their decision to move back as a political response to their adoption Others, it's, you know, maybe just to learn more about the culture, immerse themselves, uh, learn some language, take a class. You know, it's just a huge range of what people are expecting when they move back. What I think is very liberating about this idea of moving back is that it is the adoptee's choice to move back, whereas the choice to leave was not their choice. Going back to sort of the how this all happened, it sounds like it was sort of a convergence of, on the one hand, I mean, it was a supply and demand issue, it sounds like in some ways. But it's it's also interesting that, I guess, in the 1950s, after the Korean War, there was this surge in orphans. I mean, there were, there were children without families to take them in, and 
that's how this all got started. But then it really continued through the 70s, 80s, and later. How is it that South Korea became the place, as I understand it, that more children have been adopted internationally from South Korea than any other place? And that took place over decades. How did that happen? You had private adoption agencies that were allowed to set up in Korea And the government didn't put up a lot of roadblocks for these adoptions. They made it simplified. In the case of the early decades, an American couple was able to adopt without ever getting on a plane. That just made it a very easy process for adoptive parents, that the children, you sign a check, fill out some forms. It was very minimal from what I understand in terms of the application process and the requirements. And your child could land on a plane in the airport nearest your home and you go pick them up. And the idea is to raise them as your own, assimilate, uh, was thought to be the best way to raise this child from another country, assimilate them into uh, American culture. And if you think about it, 99% of all adoptive parents of Korean children are white. It's sort of like a a social experiment, if you will, but you have predominantly white uh, families, parents, adopting these Asian children from Korea and given very little guidance as to how to raise that child with a healthy racial identity, how to raise that child with a healthy identity of being a person of color in a country that At that time, the power structures, you know, it was all pretty much still a a white majority, um, although the U.S. has changed a lot since then. With the sort of rise of the Internet in the last 15, 20 years, it's made it possible for isolated individuals to realize that they're part of a larger community. And so I can't help but imagine that adoptees who are sort of parachuted into some part of the world where they might be the only person that they know. And I know there are some sort of clusters. There are some communities where there are a large number of adoptees than others. But the internet sort of provides a lifeline for people to reach out and get to know each other and other people who are sharing similar experiences. And I wonder, does that play into what you're seeing here with in recent years, there has been this trend of of Korean adoptees going back to Korea, either to visit or to live? Well, I think Korean adoptees have gotten a lot of attention because since it was one of the first countries to pioneer adoption from their country to the West, that Korean adoptees are growing up and they're being really the first in a lot of things, the first to get married, have children, uh, the first to come of age and start to form and organize within their own communities to talk about adoption, uh, to talk about being an adoptee, to politicize, to form activism, or, you know, just to find social groups. Whereas the Chinese adoptees, really their coming of age now, the majority of them are under 20 years old or less. But in Korea, because it started so much earlier, Korean adoptees are now becoming scholars in their own right, they're academics, sociologists, social workers, and writers, authors, uh, playwrights. They're starting to produce work around this theme of adoption, being an adoptee, being an inter-country adoptee. Um, The internet definitely did have a huge impact on adoptees finding each other, because like I said, with 
99% of adoptive parents of Korean children being white, and they primarily chose to live in racial communities that were similar to them. The vast majority of adoptees do talk about having this childhood where they were the only Asian, sometimes even only non-white person in their community growing up, which just has a huge impact on who you are, your identity, and everything like that. It's just a huge influencer. Growing up in such kind of racial isolation, there wasn't really a lot of room to feel Korean, to experience, you know, some things that were Korean, to any sort of foster a Korean identity, whether it be, you know, food language, role models. I mean, these are kids raised in communities where there just wasn't a lot of access to multiculturalism. What the internet did in about the 90s, which is about the same time a lot of adoptees who were, you know, adopted in the 70s and 80s were really coming of age, was these social media groups, which allowed adoptees to form online communities to talk about issues, to post pictures, to post thoughts, to gain support from each other. When even these were across continents, Europe to U.S. or across states, um, even the, when there wasn't really a physical group, there wasn't people actually meeting, but there was a place online for these forums to grow and for um, adoptees to congregate. And it was kind of a safe community because, you know, it wasn't, like I said, when you grow up in a certain way, it is often a huge hurdle to even think about showing up at an event where everyone looks like you because you just never were around that your entire life. So it, it seems a bit strange, actually. The Yeah, like going back to your, you know, your original question, the internet was really, from what I understand, and I myself was not um, really connected with the Korean adoptee community online when the early days of the internet. But Facebook groups have really made it really possible for people to find a community with each other. And those have kind of spawned these sort of actually bona fide. In most of the larger cities, you do have one sort of Korean adoptee group. They have these groups, where they have meetings, there's um, social hours, there's um, other kinds of events that take place that all are sort of in some ways they're filling a need of post-adoption services that the agencies either can't or won't fund. You have adoptees who have came of age and started to talk about issues of, you know, mental health and um, support groups. And I can't talk about race with my parents, you know, things, things that maybe adoption agencies aren't set up to address the adoptee groups they're sort of stepping in and providing these kind of services just through, you know, adoptees helping each other. And um, the internet was really the door that helped people find each other, meet, and now they've taken them offline as well. So so right now you you are in Seoul, Korea, and you're there on a 10-month project to interview people who were born in Korea, adopted overseas, and have decided to come back to Korea. What have you learned from talking to these people about who they are and what it is that they're doing right now? It is just such a wide range. I think because we're all Korean adoptees, there is a lot of things, a lot of relatable experiences that we have. But beyond that, we are just all different people. Their reasons are varied, are just as varied as to why they come back. And then also how they process the information that they receive through their experience of living here. And that's also very diverse. 
the experience here can becomes much more complex based on also your set of circumstances, which are really kind of specific to you. Uh, there's circumstance of their adoption, the way they were raised, where they were raised, how they felt about that experience, and then their reasons for coming back and also their set of circumstances while back in Korea are just also varied. But I think that has been truly interesting for me to hear all the different stories of adoptees and their experiences of being here. For example, if you were reunited with your birth family, and so that's going to have an impact on your time here in Korea, whether you're not reunited, whether you're reunited and you're having difficulty communicating with them or maintaining ties. These are all sort of circumstances that play into people's everyday life, whether you're here and you don't want to search, but you just want to experience life in, you know, Seoul. And because you're an adoptee, it makes it easier because you have, uh, you're able to access special visas. Uh, there's a special visa for overseas Koreans, and this is for Koreans who, you know, are maybe second, third generation Korean Americans. Well, it, in whatever countries they are, and also for Korean adoptees. Um, we also fall into this category, so we can get a special visa type, which allows, it's very generous in its terms, where uh, you can pretty much come and go in the country. Uh, it's renewable every few years, and there's fewer restrictions on work. You actually can come here to live without having a job, having to be sponsored. So, it, it does make it a lot easier now for Korean adoptees um, to come back. And so that is another reason why I think you're seeing a lot coming back. So some people come back basically wanting answers, right? Like what what happened to my family? Why did they send me away? And some people don't want to know that at all because their experiences are different for whatever reasons, right? Yeah. And, and within that, you know, you're, you know, it's just so difficult because you're coming from this kind of Western mindset of, Okay, well, after you've reunited, you know, you want to get the answers about why. And I think there is some kind of uh, thing that where, you know, adoptees are also asked by their Korean families to forgive for forgiveness. And adoptees are often put in that position of having to um, sort of absolve their parents for their relinquishments. And then at the same time, adoptees are expecting some kind of apology, you know, it's kind of a, a, a reunion that's a bit fraught because it really, you know, it really varies on how satisfied you are with those answers. You know, I think there is these cross-cultural differences that take place where a Korean uh, mother's answer maybe is a bit vague. Maybe they do that to, it's just too painful to stir up the memories. You know, it's not that important now. And for an adoptee, they might be coming at that very, very differently. And so a vague answer may not be satisfying and they may want actual details before forgiveness can happen. So it does make these situations sometimes very, very difficult. We have to remember that um, a very low percentage of adoptees ever reunite with their families. Since 2012, even the Korean government's own estimates are about 15% that request to look at their files. Actually, in any given year since 2012, 
their Korean families are able to be located. So that's that's a very low percentage. You know, that's 2012. I think many people would suggest that adoptees who looked before that, the percentages of reunion are even much, much lower. So, so finding your birth parents is is obviously key for a lot of people, but it's not the only reason people are coming back. I mean, I imagine any kid who's adopted probably wants to know, like, what would their life have been like had they not been separated from their birth family? Uh, lots of kids who were not adopted imagine what life would be like with a different family. But aside from family, in this case, we're talking about culture, we're talking about country, we're talking about, you know, all sorts of different things. So I imagine a lot of people are are probably just interested in finding out more about where they came from in terms of the place and the people and the and the culture. Yeah, I mean, you know, for some adoptees, you know, finding a Korean parent or relative just maybe not in the cards. Yes, there's maybe little information and just nowhere to go forward. And there's cases where people make, you know, an active decision not to search for whatever reason. But there are other things um, in terms that, you know, experiences that can kind of inform you on what it would be like to live in Korea. Now, for myself, you know, I am coming at this as an American raised raised in America. So what I see in my experience here and having very minimal Korean language you know, it's not necessarily the same as if I, <laughs> it's definitely not the same as if I had grown up here and this is what life is like, but it does give you a sampling. It does give you kind of an idea of what society is like today. In many ways, you have a lot more in common with other foreigners in terms of a set of experiences here than you might with your typical Korean on the street. But there are some things, one thing that that I hear over and over again from adoptees is, you know, the visual fitting in definitely does happen where you, it's felt immediately upon arrival that for the first time you do really fade into the background. It can have a sense of validation, but another, you know, the longer you are here, the other ways beyond how one fits into society starts to become more evident And it's just not a visual thing that there are things about you, about feminism, about your politics, about gender politics, about whether, you know, your ideas about family, what constitutes a family, what can constitute a family, gay identities. There's just a whole other range of parts about yourself that as a Korean adoptee may not fit here in Korean society. So the longer you live here, the more those other societal things become more evident and you start to think about your identity more that way in terms of these other ways that are maybe not so visual. I'm remembering, as you say, that's an interview that you did with a young man who was gay, who in the West was comfortable with his sexual identity and, and who he was. And in Korea, he seems to have found places that he feels comfortable, but he, because the cultural expectations are very different, he's basically not out in the same way in Korea as he is in the United States. That is kind of a tragic story for that adoptee because as an Asian gay male in the U.S., it took him a while and and some struggle to actually feel comfortable with himself to come out, come out to his family. I mean, it's a huge step. Um, And although, you know, he did say in our interview that there has been a lot of strides in American society as well about the acceptance of LGBTQ people. But you don't have to go back far in even America's history to see where that was not always the case. And so as a, you know someone in his mid-20s 
even today, he had struggled to come out and be open and to be accepted and, and also to fully accept himself. And then to move back to Korea and then feel the social pressure, feel the threat of what it could do to his relationship with now his Korean family that he's reunited with, to feel that kind of social pressure to actually go back into the closet is very tragic, but also, and many people have this idea of, well, if you're reunited, then it's great. And you've got these two families now, and you've got the best of both worlds, but it is not that simple. It is fraught with all these different societal expectations Um, ideas about family. And, you know, there are a lot of things. I think this individual really is sacrificing a lot of things he enjoys in the West in order to try to establish, reestablish with his Korean family here. You know, it's not for everyone, but for many people, there's just a very strong feeling of the need to know where you're from. Yeah. and, And I mean, from an outsider's perspective, I think, you know, when I first started listening to these stories, it was hard for me not to say, well, is this person better off having been raised where they were? Would they have been better off had they stayed home? But it's it's not an either or question, really, because what happened happened. And now the question really is, where do you go from there? It would be too simplistic to say now, even as an adoptee, my life would have been better off in Korea or my life is definitely better off in the States. I mean, there are people who do draw a line and do make those kinds of conclusions for themselves. But none of us really knows what our lives would have been like. And we are coming at this from as an American. So it's very different. For you, I know that you've been there working, you've been finding people to interview, you've been uh, using some of your time to take uh, classes and to do I think what a lot of other people are doing, which is to try and find out more about what it's like to live in Korea. What's the experience been like for you in terms of sort of connecting with your own identity? You know, I think it's like a day-to-day process. I mean, the longer I'm here, the longer it does sort of reinforce the fact that I am American. I think I'm still, I'm still in dialogue with myself about it on my own identity. You know, you hear this very, very often where in America you definitely feel you're Korean. I mean, that's pretty much reinforced every day of your life, that you're different, that you're Asian, that you're Korean. But then in Korea, it's the opposite. It's sort of reinforced for you that you're American. I mean, just in the way you approach everyday life. Oh, they do things that way? Oh, that's weird. Some people really want to sort of think about these kind of deeper issues about their identities. And some people are quite happy, just sort of experience Korea on more of a superficial level. Food and culture, travel, that's their Korea to them. And that's okay. I think it sort of really depends on what you're looking for, too. Can you tell me about some of the other experiences uh, from the people that you've interviewed and what you've learned? You know, just any favorite stories or or really insightful things that you think you've, you've taken away from some of these interviews? There's one that was that stands out for me so far. And that's a recent interview I did with a Korean, uh, actually an Australian adoptee, Korean Australian adoptee and her biological half brother. And they found out about each other about six years ago. And it was very extraordinary because, and this is one of the reasons it was just a standout experience for me is because 
They both allowed me to interview them about their reunion story, but I interviewed them separately, and I was able to do it in English because the Korean biological brother spoke English pretty well. So, I mean, that is something that is just pretty uncommon, to A, have a Korean family member able to talk about what it was like learning that they had a sister who was relinquished, that they had no prior knowledge of before, and then getting to know that person. And so getting his perspective was just completely fascinating to me. And then, you know, you do hear her side of that. And what I thought was very, very interesting is to see how they both talked about maybe the same kind of events where they both met each other for the first time. And you could actually hear how both of them describe those events. And for the Korean biological brother, for him, he remembers being very happy to meet her, to know that he had a sister. It was a very happy occasion for him. And yet he could see from the faces of his mother, his grandmother, and his Australian sister, they were not happy at that time. And then to hear from her talk about her memories of that time and reunion and things, indeed, it was, you know, it was heavier for her. It It was to be reunited takes everyone back to the relinquishment and the reasons for that. And that's a very hurtful thing, you know, on a very base level, giving up a child can be very, very hurtful. Um, and then I think that's just a, a, just a human emotion. And then what takes over is sort of the intellectual part about why it was done. But if you strip away that, I mean, just the very act of giving up one's child, uh, there's a lot of pain on all sides, but especially for the adoptee, the one given up, I think there's just always... There's always that pain that's there. And so to actually be able to interview them both separately was really so interesting for me. Have you tried to search out your birth family? Yes, I have tried. I don't have very much information at all. I don't have, you know, the the basic thing that I think really unlocks the door is if you have a name, if you have a name of your mother or father, and um, an address also is helps. You know, if you have a last known address, if you know the village you're from, it makes it a lot easier to track down. But in my case, I don't have a name. I have an idea of, of where, but I'm not exactly sure. And so not having those two things really works against me. And it's not untypical for the time. I mean, I was adopted in 71. I was born in 1970. That's pretty typical for kids given up for adoption around that time and the processing that goes on. I'm I'm really not even sure what my relinquishment story is. I mean, there really isn't a lot of adoptees have the same story where they were found by an old grandmother and taken to the local police station or they were found by the local police station or that seems to be typical whether or not that's actually true. Nobody really knows. The fact that it happened to so many of us in the exact same way really does start to beg the question of whether that was an accurate story of how we came to be relinquished or how we were found, or if that was just kind of a pat kind of storyline that the agencies filled in in our paperwork. 
it's really not clear. In my own story, I don't even have really that much. Um, I just know that some sort of government agency, uh, like a county agency, had referred me to an orphanage where I spent a couple days and then I was referred to um, the adoption agency. So there really is no, I have no details on how I was found or where or any of that. So unfortunately, I'm I'm working with very little information. But again, my situation is is very typical, unfortunately. So you mentioned earlier that you you were not necessarily a participant in in the early online communities. When did you first start to become aware of this group of people, I guess, becoming interested in going back to Korea? You know, when when did this sort of come onto your radar and how did that eventually lead to you embarking on this project? I did a story on Korean adoptees in New York last year, and that is about the time I sort of tapped into my own kind of Korean adoptee identity. I knew for a long time, I had known about adoptees who were going back to Korea on tours, usually sponsored by adoption agencies um, or affiliated with their agencies. And um, I really didn't participate in any of the culture camps. Um, I really didn't. I knew a few Korean adoptees, but it wasn't I didn't know them really because they were adopted. And I don't think we really even talked much about our adoption other than say, oh, I was adopted from Korea too. Okay. And you also have to understand that I grew up at a time, you know, when I went to college, there were things like multicultural student organizations where they would, that was like this student group for everyone who was a person of color. And that included foreign students it's just a very different time today. We're much more, you know, talking about race and talking about difference is much more part of mainstream, or it can be more mainstream um, life. But just self-selecting myself to be part of this special group was not something I was very used to doing. But part of this story, when I set out to do this story, I went to this group and learned more about these adoptee groups that had formed across the country basically because there was a void in post-adoption services that no one really knew was needed. The story was about, you know, adoptees themselves coming of age and realizing what they needed, what they lacked, what kind of supports they needed as adult adoptees. That was when I really started my own kind of journey and interest. And you hear from many adoptees who, especially I think adult adoptees who really haven't been part of an adoptee community in the past, that it's sort of like a hurdle, like once they actually do open themselves up to that experience of meeting other people based on that common experience of being an adoptee, then it's sort of like a light switch and the light turns on and you just don't look at the world the same anymore. Everything's different. You wake up and you're just a different person. And I've heard that over and over, and it definitely happened to me. And so after I did that story, there was the light switch. And I think my adoptee identity, instead of sort of feeling, you know, the idea that I was adoptee sort of floating kind of near me somewhere, um, but maybe not necessarily connected to my body, I felt like my Korean identity actually after that time was had lodged more inside of me. And I went back to Korea uh, for the uh, second time in my life. I, the first time had been many, many years ago. 
and I hadn't had a good experience. Then last year, everything sort of opened up and I really wanted to explore Korea and my Korean um, identity again. And I came back to Korea. I visited Korea last year on an adoptee tour for two weeks where we traveled throughout Korea with other adoptees, which was very, very interesting to see the countryside. And it's sort of, you know, it felt more welcoming. Korea felt more welcoming that way because there were, you know, we had tour leaders who spoke to us in English and explained, gave us kind of this more of an intimate look at Korea, Korean culture, the countryside. We got to meet some local villagers. It was a good experience. And then, you know, I decided I wanted to come back and I proposed this project. Kiyomi Getz is producer of the podcast Adapted, featuring interviews with Korean adoptees who have returned to the country of their birth. You can find it on iTunes or check out the website at adaptedpodcast.com. Kiyomi, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you can find more information about this show or listen to past episodes at our website, lpxshow.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Google Play Music, or anywhere else that you find podcasts. And you can help support the show by making a contribution to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash bradlinder. Thanks for listening to LPX. I'm Brad Linder. 